do we heal these big rifts in our systems? I went in with my eyes wide open, ready to learn and listen. There's no co-designing without co-deciding. All of these difficult questions are polarities, two options where choosing one or the other is always a mistake. There is more movement than I think people can see. Our elders enable us to see further. Wherever we are in an organisation, we do have the power to contribute to some change. Kia ora and welcome to episode 66 of Beyond Consultation. You thought we'd get to 66, that's amazing, but it's this core mission that keeps me going. Helping organisations to better serve community needs is what this is all about. So thank you for listening. Thank you for getting in touch and letting me know the episodes that really strike a chord with you. And I know the last one did with a lot of people. It was with Dr. Emily Beaujolais, looking at the science of listening, as in how can we make it easier for people in positions of leadership to actually listen, like really listen, to really embed that into how their organization works. And this is, I think, only the second or third episode that we've had now, which has been brought to you not just by Business Lab, but also by The Learning Lab. The Learning Lab is my new practice to help organizations to better serve community needs. And I've got so many ideas of where to start that I'm limiting myself at the moment to delivering one of the programs that we have got down to a fine art over the last couple of years. It's called Virtually Productive. And in it, I teach people how to love virtual meetings and how to facilitate ones that actually make good stuff happen outside the meeting room. And Every so often, I do wonder if there's more important work I could be doing, but then I'll have a conversation with somebody like I did over the weekend, which was with my sister-in-law, who said to me, oh, I had seven virtual meetings in a row yesterday, and I just went, no, 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 no. We need to learn about the science behind what that's doing to us, what it does to our motivation, our creativity, our empathy. So we've got a $250 referral bonus, which can go to you or it can go to a charity of your choice if you refer an organization to us and they end up signing up. So go check out www.thelearninglab.world/virtuallyproductive. Okay, on to today's episode. We have on the show Mele Wint. Mele was recommended to me by John Tamihiri Kemis or JT, as I know him, who was on the show back in episode 51, talking about why you should not start with why when you're looking at your organizational strategy. JT and Mele met through the co-design of the Community Governance Action Plan, and you can hear all about that back in episode four with Joe Cribb. Things are starting to get beyond two degrees of separation here. And so... JT said, you've got to have Mally on the show because she has a really deep understanding of what governance means to different Pacifica peoples. And she's an amazing translator between different worlds. Last year at Business Lab, we got approached by a large government agency who wanted to, this is their words, engage with hard to reach communities. And then, you know, they listed them off. There was young people, Māori, Pacifica, the rainbow community. I think those were the four they listed. You know, we went back and we said, well, tell us more about the young people want, you want to engage with. Tell us more about the Māori, who you want to work with, the Pacifica peoples, and so on. And they couldn't. And in the end, we declined to submit 
for the tender, which commercially was a terrible decision. But ethically, we just couldn't support their approach. It's one of those situations where I'd love to take somebody like Melly and just drop her into a meeting room and say, Melly, do your thing. Because in today's episode, she really challenges us to look at ourselves. She introduces a concept that I hadn't heard of before called cultural intelligence. We've all heard of IQ, that's our intelligence quotient. Most of us know about EQ, our emotional quotient, but I'd never heard of the cultural quotient before, CQ. Melly explains that as being comfortable amongst many different cultures. And that takes work. It takes time and effort and energy to get yourself into different situations with different people regularly. So she challenges us to grow our own cultural intelligence. And listening to an episode like this is one way that you can do that because Mally very kindly unpacks for us some Pacifica concepts of governance and collaboration. Her whakapapa goes back to Samoa. So she explains the Samoan governance system and how it's different, but actually mainly quite similar to Western governance. And for those of you who are wanting to work more with Pacifica communities, well, she gives you some pretty hard-hitting tips as well. Starting with, do not lump Pacifica peoples all together. Do your homework, get somebody on side, pay somebody to help you who can really guide you through that journey. So that is more than enough from me. Please welcome to the show, Mele Wendt. Mauri oho, mauri tu, mauri ora ki a tātou, haumi e, hui e, taiki e. Taiki e. Oh, kia ora, Mele. Haere mai ki te Beyond Consultation podcast. Warm welcome to you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Who am I? Well, I was born in Samoa to a Samoan father, Albert, and a Pālangi Pākehā mother, Jenny. And on my Samoan side, just to identify the families and the villages that I'm from, I'm from of Malie, where my father holds a chiefly title of Mawaleivao, Ainga Sa Sua, and Tuapepe of Lefanga, Ainga Sa Malie Tua of Sapali, Sapatu of Vaiala, and Saasi of Motaa. And on my father's side, my surname is Wendt, obviously from Germany or Wendt. My great-great-grandfather Ernst, Jerome Wendt, who was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1838, was an agent for the German trading company Godfrey and Sons and traveled the Pacific. Wow. He had 13 children to a Wallace and Fortuna lady in Wallace and Fortuna. Sure. But because he was traveling the Pacific, he met Kuwea Mawale Valfili of Malie and had two sons with him in the early 1880s. One of those sons died, but Heinrich Johannes Wendt, my great-grandfather, is whom all the Samoan Wents are descended from. <laughs> yeah, and my great-grandfather, Heinrich, married Mele Trude, who I'm named after. So when my great-grandmother Mele was dying in 1967, the family ratified, you know, all of her descendants. And I was going to be, my mother was pregnant with me at the time. And 
they identified the 100th descendant of Mele and Heinrich or Henry was going to be this baby that my mother was going to give birth to. And so I'm named Mele. I was oh, born a few months special. after she died in 1967 wow. and she died at the ripe old age of 94. Oh, my, my middle name is Luisa, and I'm named after my grandmother, Luisa Tsunupopopatu of Ayala. And interestingly, her lineage was that her great-grandfather was Charles Zimmerman Fruin, who was a German-Jewish-American whaler who came out from Boston, America in 1810 to Samoa. Oh, sorry, who was born in 1810 in Samoa and came to in in America, in Boston, and came to... Let me start that again. <laughs> let me start that again. My middle name is Louisa, and I'm named after my grandmother. And Louisa was the great-granddaughter of Charles Zimmerman Fruin, who was a German-Jewish-American shipwright and whaler born in Boston, America, in 1810. And he came out to Samoa in 1840 and married Meliane. And there are literally... Thousands of Samoans who are descended from that union, including my grandmother and my father. And on my Palangi mother's side, hmm. my mother Jenny was born in Yorkshire, England, right after World War II, to a British mother, Audrey, and a New Zealand Pākehā man, Robert, and they met in the Air Force in World War II. <laughs> wow. So I'm really much a fruit salad and with various ancestries, but I was very much brought up by cultural Afakasi, as we say in Samoan, half-caste, you know, Samoan and Palangi. Mm. And I grew up in Samoan, Fiji. We can talk a lot more about that if you want. Went to New Zealand as an 18-year-old to go to university. A lot of people assume when they meet me that, I was, that I'm New Zealand-born and that I grew up here. But I'm very much a girl of the Pacific. Yeah. And I'm married to Ete Wati Ete. And we, when we got married 29 years ago, we had a blended family of three young children. Together, we had one baby. Those four children are now 27, 31, 33, and 35. <laughs> and we have four mokopuna. Wow. And we, we are very proud grandparents as well. So that's enough of an introduction about me. Oh, thank you, Mele. I loved hearing that. And yeah, <laughs> the fruit salad is a metaphor that I haven't heard anyone describe themselves as before. And I was really hearing the two strong threads there. So you've got your Pacifica heritage and this German heritage as well, combining in you and this navigator heritage in you as well. You know, your German ancestors have traveled across the seas and, and so I'm, I'm interested in how does that combine in you today? Yeah, well. Renavigation is how Pacific people arrived in the Moana, in, in mm. the South, in the Pacific Ocean. You know, we've been navigating down from Southeast Asia for 3,000 years. We landed in Samoa about 2,000 years ago, our ancestors, you know, and then from there, we went further east through, to, you know, Cook Islands, Tahiti, and then all the way to Rapa Nui, to the East Island. Then we went north up to Hawaii. And then lastly, we came down here to Aotearoa about a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, without navigation, we wouldn't have the most remote and isolated and vast expanse of, of water anywhere in the world populated oh. with people. And, you know, without the skills and the knowledge and the resilience, frankly, 
of our ancestors, they would not have been able to do what I think is one of the most major feats mm. of human civilization. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. While my ancestors were probably just sitting around in the mountains, you know, scratching their bottoms there. So <laughs> very, very different, right? Well, as you know, James Cook used, you know, a Polynesian navigator to Paya to help him navigate, you know, New Zealand and the mm. Pacific. And they were using, you know, equipment that We'd never seen before, but we didn't need them because we used the stars, the water, the skies, the bird life, all the rest of it. I don't know, wind currents, et cetera. And we've been doing that for hundreds of years. Mm. The other thing I noticed, Melian, how you introduced yourself was the detail that you provided about the places that you're from and the ancestors that you look back to. Can you explain for people listening what's important for you in explaining that? Well, I think it's really, really important, especially to, you know, indigenous cultures, that who you are and where you come from is absolutely critical. It's in your DNA, but I think it's really critical to your identity and how you see the world. You know, in order for you to know where you're going to, you need to know where you're going from. You know, I think there's a song Bob Marley has actually about that. <laughs> if you know your history, you will know where you're coming from. Right. But Papa is really, I think, intrinsic in our cultural DNA. It's so important. It's important that you know your genealogy. It's important, you know, you can carry the ancestors because we acknowledge that we are as a result of the successes of our ancestors. You know? I was having a chat with some friends, former colleagues recently about that, about when you're in a situation where those kind of introductions haven't happened. The prompt for it was went to a conference and pretty swiftly got into the, the keynote speaker and there wasn't a huge amount of that. So uh, what do you do, Melly, when you're in a situation like that and you don't necessarily have the power or authority in that particular moment to go, well, maybe you do to say something. What goes on for you in those situations? I absolutely find introductions really important and it happens to me quite frequently where yeah. I, you know, I might go on to a, an online Zoom meeting, for example, with new people I've met before and they'll just want to go straight into the mahi, into, <laughs> you know, getting into the business. And I'm like, hang on a minute. Mm. We haven't met before. You know, I'd really like you to introduce yourself to me. Tell me a little about yourself and I'll do the same. Just so that, you know, and it's establishing connection. That's what it's about. So I guess that's the other point that I would add to the question you just asked before. Mm. It's just, whakapapa is really, really important because it establishes connections and commonalities between people. When you're talking about your background and then people go, oh, I know somebody who worked there or, oh, do you know something? You know, it establishes a connection on a human level, on a person yeah. level, not on a work or professional level. Yeah. So where I can, I definitely will stand in and step in and, and go, <laughs> can we have a bit of whakawhanaungatanga here? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really awesome term, which is now permeating, you yeah. know, even amongst non-Māori as something that, we need to do, and they're using the terminology, you know, let's do a bit of whakawhanaungatanga. Yeah, yeah. Getting to and, know each other. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely becoming more common. And also what I'm noticing is now that there's whakawhanaungatanga where you just, you just do it and it can feel a bit ticking the box. And then there's, I think for me, I have to understand, like, who are you and why are you here? Those are the two key questions. And so it has to go beyond. I'm 
John and I work in accounts. Otherwise, what's the point? Exactly. So rewinding then, Melia, you've moved over from Samoa, you've studied in Vic Union, Wellington, Mm. and I mean, I was looking at your career and all the amazing and diverse things that you've been involved in. I was trying to make sense of it. And yet it seems like there's a couple of threads. There's education. You've been with Vic Uni, Vic House, Fulbright, Pacifica Education Board. Then there's community funding, you know, Lottery Grants Board, Community Governance, NZ. And then also, I don't know what to call it, but something around industry and workforce development. Service yeah, that's very recent. Back in the yep. day, Real Estates Authority. What is it that draws you to each of those threads? Well, I think there is definitely a common thread and it really relates to my purpose, which I didn't actually crystallize in an articulate way until about 10 years ago. But my purpose is really to do work that transforms people's lives for the better. And the, how I came to that was, you know, I reflected back on all the things that I'd done in terms of my paid jobs as well as all the boards that I'd been on. And basically, you know, my first paid job was as a high school teacher. Now, you can't get more about transforming people's lives for the better than teaching, right? You know, you're there to educate young people. Then I went to work at Victoria University in this whole student recruitment and course advice area, and that was helping people, you know, empowering people with the knowledge about university and then enabling them to get into university and to succeed in the tertiary education environment. And then the whole Fulbright, you know, educational exchange program is all about, you know, through educational exchange comes increased understanding between people because you're living in another country, i.e. America or Americans come to New Zealand with the hope of a more peaceful world, which was what the mission was that set up the program under. But all the boards that I'm on, you know, it's really for me about being involved in organizations who somehow are there to improve the lives of people, especially in my case, to improve the lives of minority groups, whether it's Tangata Whenua and Pacific people, but also other minority groups as well. That's something I felt very, very passionate about since I was young. And I think that very much relates back to the social justice kind of environment that I was brought up in. Right. What do you mean by a social justice environment? Like, What did that look well, like? Well, I mean, I grew up with parents who were very much involved in the first wave of Pacific leadership in the Pacific. So, you know, yeah. Father Albert went, was one of the first tertiary educated Samoans who went back to Samoa just after independence and was one of the, you know, the key first Samoan leaders to really build Samoa as a country and he became principal of Samoa College and all the rest of it. And so being brought up, you know, with a whole lot of people, but very much about the social justice really relates back to, you know, a general ethos around everybody needs to have a fair go. And there's a lot of injustice in the world. And therefore, you know, what can you do about it? And so I saw growing up a lot of people around me who were fighting against injustice, fighting for a whole lot of different things, and including here in New Zealand as well. You know, if you look at Tangata Whenua and things like that, being around the corridor of, from an Indigenous perspective, you know, how can we decolonize this environment and how can we have Indigenous sovereignty? And so today, Meli, when you're in a governance role, for example, and you've got this whakapapa behind you, alongside you, 
both the people and ways of thinking and being. What are you bringing with you into that environment? What I'm asking there is, what are some of the things that are front of your mind that might not be front of mind for somebody else next to you? It's always around how does this impact on everyone, including some of the people that some of my colleagues might not necessarily think about. You know, yeah. how does this impact on ethnic minorities or, you know, the underdog or whatever? So, you know, you mentioned earlier, I'm on the real estate authority. You know, I'm on that board. It's a regulator agency. It regulates real estate agents. Now, I'm there because I've got the interests of consumers uppermost in my mind. I'm not from the industry. I don't have okay. anything to do with it. However, I'm thinking of how do we empower all of New Zealanders, not just those who know how the real estate system works. Mm -hmm. How do we empower everybody to engage and to know their rights and so that harm is eliminated in that industry? So I guess that's a little example yeah. of, I guess, what I'm bringing to the table. Yeah. So you're always thinking here, whose voice might not be getting heard around this conversation and what can I do to bring that into this space? Yeah. yeah. And who's benefiting and not benefiting. Yeah. And then you also, you play a leadership role in Pacifica governance specifically, and I know you run courses as well for Pacifica people to help them to step into their power. So mm. what kind of things are you sharing with them and teaching them as part of that journey? Yeah, well, about a year and a bit ago, Karen Rangi and I decided that there was a real gap for some governance training specifically aimed at Pacific people, but done in a way that was really empowering. It's very much the governance training course that we offer. It's a one-day course where you get the essentials of good governance in a Western world. But we call it good governance with a Pacific lens because it's designed to be very much strengths-based building on the innate strengths that Pacific people have for governance because of our cultural histories, cultures, and governance systems. So, you know, in the first part of the course, Karen shares her perspective of governance from a Cook Islands cultural perspective, and I share from a Samoan cultural perspective. And then we get our participants to share from their own cultural perspectives. But what I talk about you know, is that governance is not new or foreign to Samoans. You know, as soon as we landed in that beautiful part of the Moana, we established our own governance system. And that was 2000 years ago. Yeah, We have been doing governance for 2000 years in mm -hmm. Samoa. And that system is the collectivist system of the Whamatai or the Matai chiefly system. Right. And Can you explain you know, how that works? So every extended family will have a matai, a chief, and they belong to a village. The village will have various governance groups within it, including all of the matai that sit on the governance group. But there's, you know, the women's committee, there's the yeah. untitled men's sort of group, there are various groups. And then we have districts. So, you know, even pre-colonization, we had districts in Samoa, of which I think there were six. And, you know, it was a system that managed all of the challenges as well as, you know, the difficulties that you get in any society. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can get fighting, you can get, you know, I, 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 I don't know, yeah. fighting over resources, whatever. Yeah. 
So, you know, that was the system that we had in place. And just to talk a little bit more about it, you know, there's a very sophisticated language and a complex organization in the Fatmatai system. Right. It's hierarchical and it's structured. And there are clear roles and responsibilities within all of that. Everyone knows their place and what their role is and what their responsibilities are. There are accountabilities. And central to all of that is servant leadership, service. You know, that is a core value for Samoan, service, respect, and service to not just your family, but to the matai, to church, to community, and to a greater cause. Mm. And developing and nurturing relationships is absolutely critical to that. So, you know, you might have heard the term the va, which is that the relationship between people and you tell leva, you know, you develop relationships, you tell si leva, you nurture those relationships and those are central to that. And look, all of those things that I've just talked about, mm-hmm. they're kind of central. They're required for Western governance. Yeah. <laughs> Some other concepts. Yeah. Western governance is based on, you know, you have to ha- operate in the best interests of the collective. It's all about collective decision-making. You need to understand and are used to operating in hierarchies and mm. distinct roles and responsibilities and having accountabilities. <laughs> Western governance is based on guiding values and principles. Mm. And in Western governance, to be successful, you need to know how to develop and nurture relationships and be a team player. Mm. And you need some resilience and to be a good problem solver. And those are absolutely essential in the Western governance world. And those are absolutely present in Samoan culture and in Samoan governance systems and in all of the other Pacific governance systems that we have come across. So over the course of the last year and a half that Karen and I have been running this course, we've had a whole lot of different Pacific people sharing their experience from their cultural perspective of governance. And we find a lot of commonalities mm-hmm. in amongst Pacific. So there is no such thing as Pacific governance. Yeah. And also in New Zealand, you know, we, the diaspora, we practice our, that governance changes and it has changed because we're now here and we don't have villages. <laughs> we don't have districts, but we have churches. Right. So, but a lot of our Fatsamo and our Fatmatai practices continue in, you know, with diaspora, it, wherever we live, whatever parts right. of the world. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I was getting this rich picture as you're going through of the structure and kind of the principles behind what you're thinking of Pacifica governance. And mm. yeah, you, you said there's lots of similarities with Western governance. Yeah. What's different or what might Western governance learn from Pacifica governance? Well, yeah, I don't think there's a lot that's different. I mean, for me, if I think about the whole world and the different governance systems that exist, I think most of them operate around similar aspects, right? Mm. You know, hierarchies, accountabilities, responsibilities, everyone having a role, but also collective decision-making because fundamentally Mm. governance is about collective decision-making. So haven't really thought a lot about Western. I think for some people getting into governance in the Western world, that whole thinking of the collective mm. 
can be quite different to how what their normal MO is, yeah. modus operandi is, because they've just been brought up to, it's about me and just my immediate yeah. family. And they think like an individual. So I think that can sometimes be different where, okay. you know, around a board table, you're not there as an individual. No. You're there to be a team player, part of a collective, and to make the best decision in the best interests of the collective, not of you as an individual. So I don't know whether it's fair of me to say that, but I've certainly seen some of that behavior. Yeah. And that's the fun and the challenge of governance, really, that you're summing up right there, which is how do we take the collective view, work through all the different tensions that are there, come to something that we can all agree to move forward with. Mm. The second part to your question, I think, was around... What can they learn, eh? And I yeah. think definitely they can, first of all, you know, non-Pacific people mm. can, I guess, stop and think and acknowledge that that Pacific people and other cultures are, have their own governance mm. systems and experiences and knowledges that they're bringing to the table, mm. which are of benefit mm. in the Western governance. You know, there's this real deficit kind of thinking where, you know, oh, let's get some Pacific people onto our board. Oh, but, you know, we won't appoint, you know, the whole diversity on boards yeah. thing is really interesting. You know, you yeah. get a whole lot of people saying things like, well, you know, we can go out and find Maori and Pacific and whatever other minority, rainbow, disabilities and all that, but it has to be on merit, which is so offensive because it's assuming that those Groups of people don't have people of merit in the governance world, but it's also got one lens on it, which yeah. is if they don't have formal governance experience in the Western world, then there's a deficit. Yeah. And I'm saying you need to acknowledge that actually they'll have their own cultural knowledge, mm. their own you know experiences. Mm. And for Pacific people growing up in New Zealand, mm. huge amounts of governance experience within their families and churches and communities, often at a very young age, that they're bringing to the table. They might not have been, you know, on a formal board in New yeah. Zealand, uh, but they might have been the, I don't know, on the committee at the church or, you know, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So well, acknowledging the person those... in their extended family who organizes things, makes decisions, gets people together. Yeah, whatever yeah. it can look like. And, you know, and so I think it's acknowledging that and looking beyond the typical lens when recruiting new board members, looking at the broader skills and knowledge and experiences that people bring. Also, I think, and this might sound really blunt, but I think also to really assess one's biases and whether you might have some negative attitudes or stereotypical attitudes around around other groups of people and other as in, you know, groups that are not like me kind of thing, mm -hmm. especially if it's specific people or other people of color. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that people improve their cultural intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if people know what that is, but Julia Middleton talks about cultural intelligence being the ability to thrive in multiple cultures. Right. And, you know, how you improve your cultural intelligence is basically get out of your comfort zone and yeah. develop deepened relationships, you know, with people who are different to you to understand different cultures. And there we're not just talking about ethnicity. Yeah. We're talking about religious views. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, rural versus urban. We're talking about a whole lot of different mm. difference. 
And that's becoming harder to do in ordinary life. We have to make more of an effort to get outside of your home, outside of your social media bubble to bump into different people. And it doesn't happen quite as naturally for some people as it used to. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You have to make a deliberate effort. And it's not just, you know, fleeting meetings. It's really spending time to develop deeper mm. relationships rather than just on the surface. Melly, one question that was coming up for me there as you were talking about a new person starting on a governance board who might have Pacifica heritage. Mm. What can non-Pacifica people do to create a space that feels welcoming, inviting, a space where they can be their whole selves? Well, even before you've welcomed them on, I think you have to have the desire to work with that Pacific person or those Pacific people in a genuine and mutually beneficial way, mm. first of all. You know, they're not just going to come on the board just to tick a box. <laughs> And then, so to have that really genuine and mutually beneficial environment and then create a welcoming environment for them, you know, that really encourages and nurtures and celebrates diversity and the differences, the cultural difference that they're bringing mm. and to provide support mm. and, you know, advice and, and maybe even some mentoring along the way mm. so that they're not just left to their own devices. Mm. What if you're in a, an environment where there is racism already kind of existing? Should I go, no, actually, I'm not going to bring Melly into this environment, or do I look at the support that we can put alongside you? What's your advice mm. there? Well, I mean, this is why in our course, we know we talk about due diligence and making sure that before a Pacific person goes onto a board, they do some due diligence. They look into those sorts of things. and. Mm see whether it is going to be a potentially welcoming environment for them. Yeah, I don't know. It's a hard one. I mean, I think if you've got racist, you know, attitudes around the board table, I think you need to address them mm -hmm. and deal with them. Mm -hmm. And how you do that, well, there's a whole host, that's a whole yeah. other podcast. Yeah. But even if there are, I mean, sometimes you might not even know that those attitudes, yeah. you know, exist until the person of color comes onto the board and then, you know, somebody says something that's really mm -hmm. off. I guess it's really taking the responsibility to address that and to support, i.e. to support that person. So if I heard a really inappropriate comment made in a sort of, whether it's a racist or whatever biased way, then just I would deal with it and I would address it. And I also provide some support to that person who was on the receiving end Yeah, yeah. and make sure that they felt okay. But I mean, I guess one other strategy is don't have one Pacific person on your board, you know, have more than one because it's just unfair being the isolated one person of color, which has been, frankly, most of my governance experience over the last 25 years. Mm. But I've got lots of courage and I was just born and raised to be quite an assertive person and to have quite a lot of courage. I mean, I've developed that over the years. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't like that, you know. But because, you know, there've been some hard knocks and you learn from all of that stuff, but yeah, not to be, not to have the one person of color on your board in the first place is, mm. yeah, deal with that. So have the great, the more diverse the board is, I think the better it is for everyone mm. on a whole lot of levels, Yeah, yeah. including the, safety the research wise. research backs that up. Yeah. 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 Thank, thanks, Millie. And one thing that you, that you mentioned there was. Or, or that I got a sense of is looking at yourself 
first yourself being, it might be a board or it might be yeah. a team in an organization or it might be the yeah. organization as a whole, but actually having some way of understanding where are we at before we start involving people who might be different to us right now in mm. this organization, in this kaupapa. Yeah. And the other thing I'd add too is to think about, you know, reciprocity and generosity, which are fundamental to Samoan culture, but to mm. many, you know, most cultures, eh? But, mm. and so to think, well, you know, if I, if I want, if I want to engage with this, this specific community or group, or I need this person, specific person to come onto my board to think, well, it's, it's, it's two way, you know, it's, it's reciprocal. So if that person isn't going to, if those groups or people are going to engage, you know, what are they going to get out of it? Mm. There has to be something in it for them, you know, with them, what's in it for me. So, you know, if, if you're expecting generosity, expect to be reciprocal as well. Yeah. yeah. And who was I chatting with recently? Ivan Tava. He, Ivan, if you're nodding your head, works at PwC and we were talking a bit about what you can do to treat your own staff, your own colored staff with respect. And one of the things that he's helped me to understand is that for many Pacific and Māori people, when you leave your job or your board, you don't actually leave the job or the board. And for a lot mm -hmm. of white people, you can push pause and you can go home and you're not doing that mahi in the weekend simply by being at church or on the sports field. So how do you as a Pacific person merely navigate that reality? Well, you know, it can be hard, especially if you've got multiple demands coming at mm. you and you're seen as somebody as a go-to person. Oh, let's ask Melia. I mean, sometimes mm. I think, how on earth do people think that I'm going to know the answer to that? But anyway, <laughs> often I do, or I can help. <laughs> but it's really difficult. And especially if you're a woman as well, I think, because women... You know, in our experience, mm. Pacific women carry a lot of the family responsibilities and child rearing responsibilities. So I have spent a lot of my adult life supporting and counseling other women, especially Pacific mm. women, about how to manage all of these multiple demands. Mm. And the key thing that I always go back to is look after yourself. You cannot look after other people unless you are okay. And so mm. you need to make sure that you are well and you're looked after and your needs are looked after before you can then help anybody else. And so, because if you don't, that's when things go awry, you can get sick, you know, a whole lot of things, you know, your health gets affected, et cetera. So I've always had a really good, I think generally, or I developed it over the years, the ability to sort of go, no, I've got to say no. So that's my other key message that I've been saying to women my whole adult life. Mm. Learn to say no. Mm. You know, and I need to tell myself that sometimes. <laughs> so learn to say no and then take time out mm. and, you know, do whatever it, it, you need to do in order to look after yourself. Mm. And then I guess it's a matter of just really sort of prioritizing and going, what's important here? Is it my family? Is it my church? Is it my paid job? Is it all those sorts of things? Mm. And, and really, I guess, having good, open, honest communication to the people in those worlds mm -hmm. in order to ensure that they know what's going on for you. 
<laughs> you know, and this is, I think, a lot of what we do, what us specific people do. We don't necessarily communicate what's really going on for us. We're trying to manage everything, you know, maybe in our paid jobs. Right. Meanwhile, at home, things are going berserk, whatever. Somebody's died. There's a fat lovey lovey. Mm. And just, yeah, I guess being open and, you know, communicating those, those things with your colleagues and saying, well, actually, I'm not going to be able to do that because yeah. blah, blah, blah. So learning to say no and just managing and, and having an open communication mm. about it. And I think we're becoming, we as in organizations in general, are becoming a lot better at those conversations. Yeah. Even COVID helped with that because it just shone such a direct light on what was going on in people's homes. Yeah. They ignore it any longer. Yeah. They were literally in the workroom. Yeah. You? Yes. And I think, don't you think that working from home now has provided a little bit of, not respite, but it's helped families to you know especially parents to deal a little bit better and more flexibly <laughs> with things going on you know in the home mm. so when you do work from home you know you can just say in between zoom meetings you can be you know i don't know hanging out the washing and yeah. you know, that sort of stuff yeah. do you know what i mean, I mean. That's so you're what I'm getting... doing after this yeah, yeah. exactly yeah mm. hey well Mele, we've traversed all sorts of topics here. We've talked a bit about, you know, governance from a Pacifica worldview. We've talked about what non-Pacific people can do to create a better environment for Pacifica people to step into or work alongside. And I guess another topic that I'm keen to unpack a little bit with you is more from an organizational perspective mm. of how can an organization work better with Pacifica communities and yeah you know, I'm thinking of a large community organization for instance and maybe at a strategic level they've gone right one of our three focus areas we want to uphold our obligations unto te tiriti or waitangi and work partner better with Māori and we want to serve Pacifica communities mm -hmm. you know at that level they've yeah. got this intention and that's happening for a lot of organizations now and so I'm seeing the rubber is hitting the road for uh, people like you who are a little bit of the person in the middle mm. between your Samoan community and all these organizations with good intention. Mm. So what are you seeing at the moment is helpful for organizations to be thinking about so that they're not, well, so they're not making doing it worse it. to start yeah, with. Yeah. yeah. Or doing it wrongly. Yeah. I think it, it relates back to some things I said earlier. I think, you know, develop your levels of cultural intelligence so that you're doing this in an appropriate way. You're not mispronouncing names. You you know a little bit about, you know, different Pacific cultures so mm. that you're already kind of prepared and knowledgeable a little bit about how different Pacific, you know, groups and society cultures work and different like that. And also the other key point I want to make is just not lumping all Pacific people in one homogenous group because we're not homogenous. You know, we have Pacific people from, I don't know, multiple different nations here that live in New Zealand, you know, whether it's Kiripas people or Tuvalu or different parts of Micronesia. You know, yes, we know we've got all the Polynesian groups. Yeah. Can I just jump in and ask there, where do you refer people to? So as a non-Pacific person, I don't want to waste people's time going around and, hey, can you, you know, I want to do it in a respectful way and I want to build on the knowledge that already exists. Well, I think my point around diversity and not being a modulus is that there is no one place that you can refer people to. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about engaging with Pacific communities, 
it's not as easy as an endeavor to do as you might think it is. You know, we have Pacific people of lots of different ethnicities. Right. So let's take the Samoan community in Wellington as an example. We have within the Samoan community in Wellington, there is no one, you know, Samoan community group, period, mm -hmm. right? We have lots of different churches. Samoans are Methodists, they're Mormons, they're Protestants, they're Catholics. There's Samoan groups in all of those, Samoan churches in all of those. And then there are some Pacific people that don't go to church. And there are people that live in a whole lot of different areas. And there are other different, you know, Pacific interest groups. And there are Pacific not-for-profits, you know, NGOs providing services to Pacific people and things like that. So I guess the point is, it's not as easy as it sounds. There is no go-to place. Mm. And therefore, as I said before, upskill yourself so that you know more about Pacific people and the complexities and blah, blah, blah. Mm then identify some key people. I, my advice would be identify some people who you can call on, who you are going to pay, by the way, not just do this for free, yeah. remunerate to give you some advice on where they might go and how they might go about doing it and help you to do it. So, you know, utilize the personal connections that you might have yeah. with key Pacific people yeah. and professional connections and then ask them to connect you with other groups. Mm. Uh, and also, you know, connect with Ministry for Pacific Peoples because they've got an extensive database and, mm. you know, they can sort of help help there as well. And then but the whole thing around being genuine and and thinking about reciprocity and how are we going to do what, whatever we want to do, whether it's to consult on X or Y, in a way that respects people's time and effort that you're getting something out of them what are they going to get in return how are you going to and I don't necessarily mean you know a koha there I just mean how are you going to do it in a way where there's some reciprocity where they feel like they're getting something out of this as well mm. and that might for example at the moment I'm helping the independent electoral review panel to engage with different groups and helping them to organize a session with specific people mm. That's a really important kaupapa that key Pacific people will want to engage with because yeah. this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a say around New Zealand's voting system. <laughs> so that's enough in it for me to <laughs> want to go along to a session where I can give my two cents worth about whether the voting age should be lowered, whether the MMP things should, you know, what are, all the yeah. questions that the current independent review is asking. So it could be that, or it could be actually a $50 grocery voucher, which mm. one department agency used mm. for some of the sessions that I did. And it was good. It was really good. People engaged. They appreciated the $50 grocery mm. voucher. Thank you very much. Because that's their time. And that's also a help. You know, yeah, I'd really appreciate a pack and save $50 voucher. It's going to take 50 bucks off my grocery bill. That's a good thing. Definitely. Melly, thank you. I felt like I wanted a pen and paper as you were talking through there. <laughs> and I think for a lot of people listening, um, what you've shared will be really helpful because there is a lot of good intention out there. And what you're explaining is how do you translate your good intention into practice? Mm -hmm. And it's thinking of who are you connected with and talking with them, starting there. There's also Ministry for Pacific Peoples and the resources there. I mean, there's also now... We've got the Arts Festival happening here in Fakatu Nelson at the moment. And I was looking at a couple of the events today. And 
I'm going to go to that, not for entertainment, but more for infotainment of, I want to learn more about, there's one on local iwi and I want to mm. learn more. So great. I can actually mm. go to this arts event and learn more. So it's just starting to open your eyes and ears to those opportunities around you to build your cultural intelligence. I love that. That's phrase. it. So CQ. Yeah. CQ. So in order to be effective, you need IQ, you need the intelligence, you need EQ, the emotional intelligence, but you need CQ, the cultural intelligence. Mm. And if every New Zealander did some more to really increase their cultural intelligence, this country would be the most amazing place. Mm. Oh, Mally, I'm feeling very inspired by your corridor. Thank you so much for what you shared. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Consultation. And what now? Well, I've got three suggestions for you. Firstly, go and check out the show notes in your podcast player or on the Business Label Learning Lab website so you can see the resources that were shared in the show. Secondly, send a message to our guests. It's really nice when you've been a guest in this slightly nerve-wracking experience and then people get in touch to thank you for sharing your stories and experiences. And lastly, do connect with me on LinkedIn. I view LinkedIn as an ongoing conference. You know, this amazing way to be exposed to new people and new ideas that can stretch and enhance your practice. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you again for listening. Ngamahi mo te whakaro.